Lord, this is um, your word that we're going to be looking at. And I just uh, ask that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would change us, Lord, the way it's intended to change us, that it would cause us to see you more clearly and to rejoice in who you are and to just turn from all things that are not pleasing to you that we might just um, walk with you and testify to you and just rejoice, Lord. Rejoice in the living God. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to um, look at um, <coughs> the first chapter of Revelation which is, fits right in with peace. <laughs> if you look at one of the very first verses in the first chapter, though, it says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come. And Jesus is saying this, the message that he's giving put to John to reveal to the churches and to the people of God. And he's saying, you know, this message that uh, so many of us find mystifying and in some cases terrifying is grace and peace to you from Jesus. Anyway, what I really wanted to do initially was to look at the letter to the first church, which is in the second chapter of Revelation. And the more I looked at it and the more I struggled with it, the more I realized that it's an incoherent task to talk about that without looking at the first chapter first. That's like skipping over something that's vital and pretending that everybody knows what comes before it. And obviously that's not the truth. So a little background is always helpful. And in the case of the book of Revelations, <clears throat> I think it's vital. So if you've got your Bible handy, you might want to look at the first chapter. And I would suggest that later on, you read it again and you read it in a, in a position of prayer because you can take so many of these verses individually. And if you're prayerful when you're reading them, so much more begins to, to spill out and so much more begins to envelop you as you just are marveled at what God has shown us and is showing us. <clears throat> but anyway, background. The letter was written by the Apostle John and he was imprisoned at the time on the Isle of Patmos. And um, the Isle of Patmos is 30 some miles southeast of the coast of Turkey. And it's, um, it's a rocky volcanic um, place of hills and that sort of thing. And it's about 10 miles long and five miles wide. And it was used mainly by the Romans at this time as a place for uh, exile and banishment, especially for political prisoners. And this was probably the time of persecution under the Roman Emperor Domitian. And um, earlier, 
when Nero was emperor, there was a persecution also, but the persecution under Nero took place mainly in Rome and the uh, confines of, of that city and just maybe the outskirts. But under Domitian, he decided that he wanted to be declared a uh, god while he was still alive instead of waiting for the Senate to declare him a god after he died. And um, he didn't want anybody interfering with the phrase Caesar is Lord. And the Christians, of course, wouldn't do this because to the Christians, Jesus is Lord. There is no other Lord. So the Christians were being targeted and it was a time of persecution that was beginning to get more and more heated. And these churches in Turkey, the seven of them that are addressed in the second chapter of the book of Revelation were particularly susceptible to this. Ephesus was a, uh, a city of probably uh, a half a million people at the time or so. And it was where the governor of the province lived. And so they were particularly um, intense on carrying out the, the uh, edicts of Rome. Whereas if you lived further away, then it took messengers longer to get there and they weren't quite as intense on carrying it all out. So you've got persecution from the Romans. You've got persecution from false prophets, lies from them that were heated and everywhere. And then you've also got the immorality that came because Ephesus was also, if you remember back in um, the book of Acts, Paul spent uh, two years in Ephesus and there's where the big, the great temple to Diana, the goddess that was worshiped and it was a goddess of fertility. And the temple to Diana was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so it was a, a home of magical arts and um, all of these sort of things, prostitution, because the priestesses of Diana were involved in cult prostitution. So you have all this and behind the scenes, like always, whether we recognize it or not, you've got Satan and he's at work with his invisible war against the lamb and all these things are taking place. So this is a message to a church that's under attack. And it's under attack from false prophets. It's under attack from worldly values. And it's under attack from Satan, most of all. So the purpose of the, of the, the book is to awaken the church. It's for us to face the reality of what is and the breadth of what's going on. And so that we won't be asleep to the strategies and that we will be faithful to the one that calls us, the one who died for us. So if we look at the first three verses of the first chapter, <clears throat> it'll say the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants the things which much, must soon take place and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, 
John, who's testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who bear, who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. God gave a message to Jesus who sent his angel to John to give to all that he saw. The word translated revelation comes from the Greek word apotheosis, which we translate or uh, it, it uh, comes over to us in English as the word apocalypse. And the word apocalypse has come to mean in our language today, something that's cataclysmic, some uh, cataclysmic event like an earthquake or tsunami or volcano that um, is terrifying and great as far as its destruction is concerned. But the word then meant, it means to uncover or to reveal. So it's an unveiling, it's a revealing of something that has been hidden. So it's, this is a message that we are supposed to read and understand, not that there won't be some difficulties in it and some things that are hard to understand, but we're supposed to read, to study, and to understand what it says. It's not a message to be hidden from the church. It's a message of revelation of Jesus Christ, who he is, and the message that he speaks to us. This is different than what the book of Daniel says. And Daniel, of course, has one of the great prophetic, futuristic uh, sayings and, and uh, words in the Old Testament. And in chapter 12 of Daniel, Daniel is told to go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. And here we're told that these words are revealed. And it says to show his servants. And literally this means slaves. And we are slaves of Jesus Christ. We're his bond slaves, bond servants. We are called to be his. We belong to him. He has delivered us from the world. We're now his. We're God's people forever. So this book is not written to people that do not believe. It's written to people that do believe. They're written to people, it's written to people that belong to God. So it's not to unbelievers. It says the things that must soon take place. And here you're gonna run into many different interpretations of what soon means. And they're, they're more than I can count, to be honest with you. But if it means soon, like we normally mean soon, how is it that 2,000 years have gone by and we haven't seen many of the things that are spoken of in this book? So we ought to understand that soon, that Christ returned does not doesn't carry with it a timetable, but it communicates a sense of urgency that we seek throughout the New Testament. 
and we see it in the Old Testament also, but particularly in the New Testament, that was the message that John, the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles all gave us. The time is soon. Repent now. The time for repentance is now. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Jesus' first coming marked the time when history was entered into and the last phase before eternity. So Paul expressed the mystery and the urgency in 2 Corinthians 6.2 saying, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And there are other people that see, see soon meaning quickly, which means that things will go the way they are, but once they start, they will culminate very, very quickly. So it'll be a while before things happen, but the minute they start, it's gonna be a crescendo of things happening one after another. It'll be quickly once they start. Sort of like a, a just sort of like a volcano building up, building up, but you don't see it happening until it the pressure gets so great that it erupts. So you have the churches in Asia, Asia that were beginning to experience persecution for their faith in, in Jesus. And Caesar wanted people again to affirm that he was God, and that wasn't going to happen in the persecution, just increased it. And God wants his people to know and to be aware that this is coming and that it's going to happen, but he wants to strengthen his churches to stand firm during this coming storm of persecution. The problem seems to be that the, the people and that the prophets were not very interested in chronology, the sequence of events and times. They were never that much concerned to, about it. And the future was always viewed as imminent any time now, soon to come. It could happen any moment. And this was always the view of the prophets. The nature of biblical prophecy makes it possible for every generation to live in expectancy of the end. You see that today. People say the end could come any moment. And this has been said for almost every generation since Jesus came. So if we relax and say, well, these, these promises don't really mean anything. They're just figurative. And what that actually means is that you're, you're doubting divine truth. So it's very, very uh, scary for a Christian to say, well, these things don't really mean anything because we're meant to see it as what it says. It's soon. It's quickly. And it may not be quickly the way we want to see it, but it's going to be quicker than what we want when things actually happen if we're not ready. So the biblical attitude is to take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. And in verse 3, it says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear. Some versions say, read aloud. And this is really implied in the text because you have to understand that not very many people were literate. Most people could not read. And so they were 
dependent on the scribe, on the, uh, the, the priest to read the word of God to them. So how are you going to have this where it says this is you're supposed to obey this, you're supposed to understand it if it's not read aloud? So it's a blessing pronounced on these Christians on the different congregations where John's letters are read and they're to be read aloud. The revelation was given not just to give information about the future, but it was to help God's people in the present, those who keep the words. And remember to the Jews, if you hear, it means you do. And if you don't do, it means you really haven't heard the word at all. So the words you hear are so important and you have to hear them. And the only way you're gonna do that is if they're read to the congregation. Verses four through eight read, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. And to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. Now tell me you can't read that and meditate on it and not just want to know God more and want to see him more clearly than you see him now. Says to the seven churches. Revelation is organized in sevens. You see them all over the book. And seven is a biblical symbol of completeness. So the choice of seven churches hints at the wider relevance that this is a message to all churches because the word seven again is a complete number. So this is really a message to churches at all ages. And there have been people that in the past that have said, well, we see the, the church to this, this church is uh, to, like to Ephesus is for this age and the church, the letter to Smyrna is this age. But these letters are to churches in every age. And every one of these letters applies to every church. Every church needs to read each of the letters and consider what it says and see how it, it applies to you. Are we following it? Are we, do we look at the rebuke that Jesus gave and we say, how does this apply to us? From him who is and was and is to come. And this speaks about the eternality of God. He's eternal. And in Christ, he's going to come again at the end of history to judge and to save. 
the seven spirits. Again, seven, completion. The Holy Spirit is not seven Holy Spirits, but it's an indication that he appears as it, the way that it's written shows that he is perfection. So saying seven is a representation of the perfection of the Holy Spirit. Later on, you'll see that it's, uh, he appears as seven torches and seven eyes. And these express his omnipotence and his omniscience is all seeing. And verse five says, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. And he's the faithful witness to God's redemptive purpose and work. He's the firstborn of the dead. And there have been other people that were resurrected from the dead, but they died again. Jesus rose and lives forever. He's triumphed over death. He's the first in importance, having supreme authority over death. He's conquered it. It's under his feet. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. His dominion's universal. Jesus loves us. He's freed us from our sins by his atoning death and made us a kingdom of priests. Means we enjoy intimacy and access to him. is coming in the clouds. The theme of Revelation is the second coming of Jesus. And it's gonna be a public, a visible event. Where am I, okay. When Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin, before he was taken to Pilate, he was asked by the high priest, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And here we see that he says he's coming with the clouds. And it says, even those who pierced him. And some people have taken this to mean that the people that saw Jesus when he was on the cross but it means more than that. It means all people in every age who reject or are indifferent to him are going to see the ones, those that pierced him. They, by their attitudes, by their unbelief, have pierced Jesus, and they're going to mourn and wail over the judgment that's coming to them. So that's a very sobering thing. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and he's the last. First and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Complete. He's the all in all, the beginning and the end. He's the absolute source of all creation and all history. And he's the almighty. He's supreme over all things. Verses 9 through 16. I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. 
was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. When you read things like this, it's a good thing that he starts it off with saying grace and peace to you who belong to me. John says he's a fellow partaker of the tribulation which he shares with all the churches. Imagine if you think that, um, well, you know, if I do certain things, I can escape the, the difficulties of life, the tribulation that's coming. And um, John says, no, think about it. All the disciples suffered tribulation. They all suffered persecution. But John, you're the, you're the one that Jesus says he loves. We know he loves all the disciples, but he specifically says that he loves John. Well, the one that he loves the most, maybe, is in prison on Patmos, on a rocky island by the Roman. So if it happens to me, you need be, to be prepared. Tribulation, difficulties come with belonging to Jesus. It's a refining thing and it's gonna to happen to all of us. There's a great tribulation, but this is not in most of the New Testament because most of the New Testament refers to a distress that's common to all people. 
In John 16, Jesus tells his disciples, in the world you will have tribulate or tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And also in Acts 14, Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. John wants to encourage the churches. So he says, look at me. John was caught up by the spirit to enter into a trance on a Sunday, the Lord's day, the day of Jesus' resurrection. So this is one of the first times we see that this is what was considered the Lord's day, not the Jewish Sabbath, but this, the day of resurrection. And he heard a voice and the voice told him to write what he was about to see and send the book to the seven churches. So he's sending this. And if you looked at a map of Turkey, you would see it starting at the bottom and going up north and then back westward, sort of an arc. And it was a, a letter that um, it seemingly all of these letters were sent and read by the churches, although specific churches had letters addressed to them. But it wasn't just, we read the one to us and don't look at the other ones. And when he turned to see who was talking to him, he saw seven golden lampstands and the fullest description of Jesus you find anywhere in the Bible. It's amazing how little we know about what Jesus looked like. It's, um, we don't know if he was tall or short, if he was thin or stout, if, we, if he was bald or had long hair. All we're told is that he appeared to be ordinary and that you probably wouldn't give him a second look. Isaiah 53, two says, the Lord had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. We assume he had a beard because Isaiah 56 talks about plucking out my beard. And that's about it until we get to Revelation verses 12 through 16 in the first chapter. And here John sees one like a son of man. And we see the reference to this in Daniel 7, where it says, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days where he was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And also we know that the, the son of man was Jesus' favorite self-designation. That's what he called himself more than any other title. The seven golden lampstands, we are told, represent the seven churches. And it says, this son of man had royal robes, white hair, and eyes like a flame of fire, and feet of burnished bronze. His voice was like the roar of many waters. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a two-edged sword came out of his mouth. Now, a lot, obviously, a lot of this is symbolic but it's symbolic of something that's blazing, that um, is radiant, 
that's glorious and that calls us to really pay attention. It says his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now tell me, how do you draw a portrait of somebody that has eyes like a flame coming out of a face that's brighter than the sun? I don't know how you can do that. Anyway, a long robe with a golden sash. And this is the dress of the high priest in the Old Testament. The white hair represents Jesus' deity who shares this with God the Father. And this verse in this chapter in Daniel, the fe these features belong to the ancient of days. And this shows Jesus shares eternal existence with the Father. Eyes like a flame of fire, symbolizing all-seeing omniscience. Feet like burnished bronze, uh, a difficult phrase for most interpreters, seeming to, uh, seemingly indicating firmness, stability, able to trample down those who are unbelieving or unfaithful. A voice like many waters, suggesting awe-inspiring power. Seven stars, and this was explained in the later verse. It's the seven churches, the angels of the seven churches. Sharp two-edged sword, a sword that cuts both ways, symbolizing the, the irresistible power of the word of God. A face like the sun describes the glory of the exalted son of God. And then verses 17 through 20 again. Well, it says that, that he fell at Jesus' feet like a dead man. John does what everybody does when they see, when they're in the presence of Jesus' divine glory. He falls on his face as though he's dead. But immediately, Jesus says, don't be afraid. He's the first and the last, essentially the Alpha and the Omega again, the sovereign one who lives forever. And he has conquered death. Don't be afraid. You belong to me. John's to write down what he has seen, what is and what's to take place. And he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Before Jesus describes what he's seen, before John describes what he has seen in his visions, he writes messages to the seven churches in Asia. And what it says in the second chapter that I was going to start with, but obviously didn't, is this from verses one through seven. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil, perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test 
those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary as we've already said ephesus was the foremost city in asia and it was a center of so many things that were grand grandiose in the eyes of men but an abomination in the eyes of god so jesus first identifies himself as the author of the words he's the one that wrote them and he's the one that walks among the churches he says he knows their works everything about everything everything that relates to their life and conduct he knows he's the divine overseer of the churches he says toil and patience this is what you've got or patient endurance the ephesian church was active in their toil even to the point of exhaustion they had been particularly facing hostility of the society that they were in and but every member was busy working for the church working for christ they were diligent and they were conscientious and he says you cannot bear evil men and this has to do with false teachers in the church ephesus was full of these men you see it if you go back to read acts where paul is in ephesus and we'll see it today in the church it, it describes today so much when you actually spend some time reading this you can see parallels consistently and the church at ephesus refused to be led away by these false heretical teachers jesus says they test that he tested those who called him or the church tested them those who called themselves apostles but were not in first john 4 it says beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from god because many false prophets have gone out into the world and this is what the church at ephesus did they tested the people that, pro that were prophets and if we stopped here you would say there is nothing that i would rather do than to be like this church but it doesn't stop there because when you look at four through seven it says but and that's a, a word if it says but i forgive your sins it's wonderful but it says but i have this against you that you have left your first love therefore remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else i am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent yet this you do have that you have that you hate the deeds of the nicolaitans which i also hate he who has an ear to hear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes i will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of god
This church possessed the rare gift of, of discernment. Their orthodoxy was unspoiled. It was solid. There was no stain on it. Some years later, the church was still renowned for its doctrinal purity. Bishop Ignatius of Antioch wrote to them at the beginning of the second century. You have, you all have according, you all live according to truth and no heresy has a home among you. Indeed, you do not so much as listen to anyone if they speak of anything except concerning Jesus Christ in truth. But sadly, there's more to the letter, and that's what we just read. Their struggle with false teachers and with false doctrines and with heretical teaching had created an attitude in the church that, um, that caused them to be suspicious of others and to grow cold in their love. Doctrinal purity and loyalty can never be a substitute for love. Their earthly devotion to Christ had cooled off. And a cooling of personal love for God inevitably it re, re, results in, in a loss of loving relationships with the body of believers. So when your love for Christ cools, your love for others cools too. Jesus made this clear in John 13, 35, where he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what does he say to do? He says, repent, first remember, then repent, and then do the works that you did to begin with. A church that's under attack like the church of Ephesus that's surrounded by enemies can turn in on itself for, for self-protection and be suspicious of others and others, everything that other people say. And the rem remedy is repentance. It involves doing the deeds that you did first when you remember your first love. And without correction, the church's light bearing to the city is going to be lost. So the, the answer is always repent. Never cease to repent. Verse five again, in the latter part of verse five, it says, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's what we always have to remember. The one that loves us and released us from us from our sins. And we can only repent if we remember that. And then he says, but this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't have a lot of information about the Nicolaitans. In fact, it's only mentioned one other time and that's in the letter of Pergamon. But the reference is seems to be when we look at the the, the verse or the uh, chapter to the to or the letter to Pergamons, it says that it compares the Nicolaitans to Balaam 
who caused the people of God to sin. And this is back in the book of Numbers where Barak, or Balak rather, came up with a strategy for King Balak, the king of Moab, to defeat, defeat God's people. And the strategy was get them to intermingle with the pagan people around them, send your women in, cause them to have fornication with them, and they will worship the idols that these people worship, and they will commit these sins, and God will curse them. So evidently, the Nicolaitans were doing some of the same things. They were saying things like, well, you know, what John says is true, but we have some deeper things for you. And these deeper things saying you're free. And, God, and John says you're free, but you're even freer than what John says. You're free to do these things and God will forgive you. So go ahead and do these things that God says are an abomination. That seems to be what the Nicolaitans were. And Jesus' last words are a promise and they're not a threat. The victor will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So the word here is not that faithfulness to truth and doctrine are not important. They're extremely important. But without fervent love for Jesus and for others, the church will not survive in any age. The church has no light without love. In the last chapter of Revelation, verse 22, chapter 22, verse 7 says, And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So I just want to leave you with what I originally wanted to start with, that leaving your first love is a danger. It was a danger to the church at Ephesus that their lampstand, their light was going to be removed if they didn't repent and come back to what they had lost. And they had lost it because they were so busy fighting false doctrine and false people that they forgot to love. They concentrated on these things and took their eyes off Jesus. And we are entreated to, first of all, Keep our eyes on Jesus above all things. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I just pray that it would be a penetrating word to us, that we would realize that this <clears throat> word is, is a revealed word. It's not a hidden word. It's a word that you want your people to, to study and to understand and to embrace and to know that it's written to us, your people not to an unbelieving world, but to those that belong to you. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name for this word. Amen. Thank you, Greg. The best is yet to come. 
I would like for us to share one song together before we uh, end our service this morning. Uh, it's this one. This is this is one of my favorite Christmas songs. <laughs> um, hope that y'all worship the Lord as we sing it together. Oh, 
Lord, thank you for revealing Jesus Christ to us in this way. Lord, I think of um, growing up and my parents might hide something under a sheet. Or Lord, even growing up in my church at communion time, we would have the, the trays set up of the, the bread and the juice and they would be covered with a sheet. It would be, be hidden. And the time would come, the appropriate time would come and uh, they would come and they would lift that sheet and reveal what was underneath. And Lord, I, when I look at this book of Revelation, that's what I think about is as if the glory of Jesus has been re hidden in some ways. But Lord, when this last time comes and it's time for him to be fully revealed in his glory and we'll see his face shining brighter than the sun and eyes of like flames of fire and hair like a white snow. Um, Lord, it'll put all of our troubles to so far in the back of our mind, we hardly remember any of them. And Lord, you, you gave this like a trumpet sound to, to John that he might record it and share it with us. And Lord, these messages to the churches, we receive this, Lord God. Let us never let our love for you fail. Lord, we have a love for you that you've given us. And so, Lord, we pray that that love might uh, be renewed every day and, and steadfast, Lord. May it be uh, excelling. Lord, may it be shown to the whole world that we love one another, that we love you. And Lord, let us love our enemies as you have instructed us. Thank you, God. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mary, is there anything that you like to share with us? Sure. I um, really want to thank Cecil and Greg for the words that they shared today. Cecil, your words on peace and all the scriptures that you used. And, um, and Greg, the reminder with all of the things that, that have swirled around us for a number of months, seven, eight, months especially, but even prior to that, that we can get so caught up in all of those things. But the thing that we are to do is repent from, from all of that and return, repent and return. And one of the scriptures that Cecil used, I, I've just pondered and linked it with what, what Greg said. Um, it was one in Romans 8, 6, the mind of sinful man is death but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. And the only way we can be controlled by the spirit is to return, to repent and return to our first love, to be controlled by him. So we're filled with life and peace. Um, there are a lot of anxiety producing circumstances that are happening even in our fellowship, Preston and Tia, of course, we mentioned initially are walking through very difficult times with Tia's mother. The, she sent, Preston sent out um, a prayer request about her and, um, and also uh, their brother-in-law, Gil. So if we would continue to remember them and pray for peace amidst the difficulties that, that the diseases are, um, are, are bringing forth in their family right now. I also 
appreciate prayers for Mary Jane, Chris, and Aaron. They are on the airplane right now going to uh, the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. They do plan to make contact with Christina Salinas, who is uh, doing her medical training at Mayo. Um, but they, they should arrive in probably a couple of hours up there. And that's, that's certainly we're looking with anticipation to see what the Lord's going to do during that time. I want to um, share with you, I had several contacts with people in the past couple of weeks who have talked about the Christmas banquet and us not having the Christmas banquet. And I got a call last night. I had mentioned a lady named Charlotte from Togo. And um, she was calling and she was talking about COVID. Go away, COVID. <laughs> we were saying, COVID, in the name of Jesus, go away. Um, she said, we didn't get to have the Christmas banquet. And she was looking at her pictures that, that she has um, in front of her in her house of the times that she was at the Christmas banquet. So I think, you know, again, there are so many things that, that we have lost. And yet here somebody calls and talks about what it means to have participated in the Christmas banquet. She and, and her whole family, uh, she put her brother on, she put her daughter on the phone and, um, and she's there looking at, at the pictures from the Christmas banquet that those kind of things, those kind of deposits, those kind of reminders um, mean so much to people. So let's remember to pray for the people who have attended the Christmas banquets in the past, that the Lord would, whether he uses pictures or whether he uses memory, um, that, that he would be using every seed that was planted in their hearts to draw them to him or to cause them to return to him. So those are, are basically the three prayer requests. And uh, please join us Wednesday night at, uh, at the church prayer meeting. So no birthdays to announce this week that I know of. And um, we continue to look to Jesus. And next week, Penny will be sharing with us on hope. Good. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Mary. There's plenty of hope that we need to. Anyone else have anything before we um, come to an end? Uh, just a couple of things. David, uh, when I talked to him earlier, he just wanted everybody to know that he continues to pray for our fellowship um, daily. And he um, was able to go to church today for the first time. Oh, wow. So he was very excited about that. Um, and I would like to add to the prayer list to pray for, I know at least two people are really struggling with their knees. Um, that would be Richard and Mary. <laughs> hmm. Okay. You said knees. Yeah, Richard's going to have an MRI yesterday, and I know, Mary, you were really hurting a little bit last time I saw you. <laughs> so I'd like to pray for your knees. Yeah, okay. Well, Carla, why don't you uh, pray for all of these things? Okay. 
Thank you. Lord, I do just thank you that we can come to you with the things that are on our hearts and minds. Lord, I know that um, Preston and Tia are walking through a really difficult time with mm -hmm. Tia's mom and with um, Gil, their brother-in-law. Lord, I just pray, Father, that your presence would be strong, Lord, uh, with them. Lord, they would see evidence of your love and tender care mm -hmm. as they walk through these um, these situations of, of health crisis mm -hmm. uh, times. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would give Tia just really intimate moments, Lord, with her mom right now. And um, Lord, that you would be with her sister as she um, cares for her husband, Lord. Mm -hmm. And Lord, I just pray for Mary Jane and Chris and Aaron as they um, are getting ready to um, are on route to the Mayo Clinic, and Lord, I pray, Father, for um, for just a, um, grand connections, Lord, with Christina Salinas, Lord, and also, Lord, um, that you would uh, that you would break through, Lord, what has been such a battle for so long, Lord. I pray, Father, for um, for there to be answers to Aaron's. In incontinence issues, and Lord, just for his his struggle, Lord, to um, to function, Lord, in a way that um, that will help him enjoy his life, Lord, that you've given him, Lord. I just pray, Father, that you would um, you would connect them with just the right doctors, Lord, uh, to be able to um, to provide some relief for them, Lord. And Lord, I pray, Father, for um, the Christmas banquet people that have been there in the past. Lord, I pray that um, that they would be able to remember uh, your great love, Lord, that we tried to um, portray, Lord, in our attempt <laughs> to um, expose them to who you are. Lord, I pray they would remember, Lord, and that they would... Um, they would hunger for more of you, and Lord, I'm um, we're missing that that time this year. But I pray that you would um, you would help us to remember and to recall, and help those that have been there to remember and recall and and know who you are, Lord. Um, I pray that you would use your word, Lord, to reveal your presence, and that you would give give them a hunger for your word. And Lord, I pray for, for Mary and Richard for their knee problems. Lord, I can certainly um, remember how much of a, a difficulty that was when I had my own knee pain. And Lord, I, there may be others too, Lord. And I just pray, Father, for, for them, Lord, um, for just a, a, a strategy, Lord, that would bring relief. Lord, and that wouldn't hinder them from doing the things that you've called them to do from um, whether it's to go on long walks or bike rides or visit with family and hike in the mountains or whatever you've called us to do, Lord. I pray, Father, that, um, that their knees would, would be strong and firm and that you would root them on your, on your word, Lord. And um, we would look to you for healing because all healing does come from you. Okay. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Carla. Mm -hmm. You're welcome.
Okay, folks, anything else before we close this meeting? Well, I wonder if Arthur's thinking about retirement. <laughs> no. <laughs> Arthur, we're thinking about you coming back here to, to be with us. Yeah. You and Nemia, we miss you. Yeah, we do too. <laughs> We love you. We love you it too. Looks, well, looks really nice where you are. It's raining right now. <laughs> Not a rain. It's not raining here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll all come to Panama. Yeah, it'll be great. <laughs>